Hi, and welcome to True North Update. I'm your host, Candice Malcolm. I'm joined today by a special guest host, Sam Eskenazi. Sam is a contributor at True North. Actually, funny enough, he was one of the original True North fellows back when True North was more of an immigration think tank. So, Sam, it's great to have you uh, back with True North and great to have you on the program today. For sure. Thanks. It's a, it's a pleasure. And I, I think that, you know, it's funny because, uh, yeah, I, I did want to get involved because I was really interested in, in uh, what you guys were doing. And uh, yeah, now I'm back. So it's great. It's great. And yeah, you've been doing some great videos. I think one of my favorite videos you did, Sam, for True North was you were talking about how uh, something about how uh, people are getting gaslit. And you, and you kind of gave a, a, a historical explanation of what that means, because I, I, I didn't even know what the um, what the origin of that word was, but it, came, it comes from a movie. Is that right? Yeah, so that's it came from a movie. I think it was in the the original one. I think it was in the '40s. I forget now the original one, but it's basically in the movie. The husband tries to manipulate his wife and make her think she's going crazy when he's really the one pulling the strings. And it bothered me because everyone always spoke about the government or or just things they don't like as being hypocritical. But it's not always hypocritical. Like if if I'm a smoker and I tell you smoking is bad, but I tell you at the same time I'm also trying to quit, that's not the same hypocritical as what you would normally think. So gaslighting is really when you say one thing and then literally do the opposite and and make it sound like they're the person who's doing the thing that they're accusing you of. Exactly. And it's such a helpful example. I think that over the past few weeks, Sam, uh, there isn't a better word to describe how the media is treating the public, particularly when it comes to the protests and how some of the protests have become very violent. So you have the mainstream media saying that the protests are completely peaceful, repeated over and over again in straight news stories and news reports, TV anchors, you hear it on CNN, but even read it in Canadian newspapers. And they'll always say, you know, these peaceful protests. And then, you know, it doesn't take too much to just go online and see videos of looting, arson, violence, to read stories about how police are being ambushed in many cities, that there's been many police officers that have been killed. And it's like, well, wait a minute, why does the media keep telling us that these are peaceful protests when they're clearly not? It's like, and, and, and I think that the concept of gaslighting, when someone is deliberately lying to you to make it seem like you, you're questioning your own sanity and, you, and you're questioning your own ability to understand the world around you. And it's such a dangerous concept and it's, and it's, it's quite, quite literally happening. So I, I appreciated that video because it helped me more clearly uh, understand a framework to, to really try to understand and explain what we're living through in this in this present time. Yeah, thanks. And I think really you can see it when they say that someone's speech is violence, whether that's on campus or on the media, people are being shut down as, you know, we're going to, I'm sure we're going to get into, but they're saying that speech is violence. And then when you see these protests, which are getting violent, like literally just physical violence, the standard textbook definition, then they're saying, oh no, that's just people expressing their anger. That's, you know, people reallocating resources or some other weird euphemism. So violence has become something that I'm now saying. So if I were to be harsh with you, I might, you know, I'm being violent. And yet, people doing textbook traditional violence, that's just something else. That's right. Yeah, I, I literally read in the National Post that, that there's a movement to get rid of the the, term, the word Dundas Street. Uh, so Dundas Street in Toronto goes through the whole city. There's Dundas Streets all over Ontario trying to get rid of them because apparently the namesake Henry uh, Dundas uh, has, you know, had some unsavory uh, episodes. And, and um, because of that, we're going to change all these names, apparently. And in the National Post article, which again, National Post is supposed to be a conservative newspaper, um, we, we, we learned that the experience of walking down Dundas Street is violence towards black and indigenous people in Canada. So somehow just having a street name is violence. Um, but, but then, you know, to your point, 
actual violence is just is just speech when when it's uh, you know left wing protesters uh, that are carrying it out. And we had that um, New York Times uh, magazine reporter who's behind the 1619 project come out and just say flat out that violence does not mean looting and rioting. Violence means actual physical violence against people, and so it's unfair that they're the same. This is the same word because she she claimed that looting and and you know destroying private property and, and all these things that she claims can easily be fixed. That's not real violence. So we're, we're definitely living in some strange times, Sam. And I think that's why uh, it's, it's great to have smart people like you helping explain uh, what, what's going on and, and why we should see, see through some of the media nonsense. And uh, speaking of media nonsense, Sam, I think the story that the big story in Canada, as always, I mean, this has been the case going back to, you know, Don Cherry getting canceled. You know, we have this this culture, this cancel culture, where if you do one thing that steps out of line, according to sort of a, a mob of, of woke tyrants that determine what what is what is right and what is wrong, um, you can lose your entire livelihood. Your career can be over. Your reputation can be ruined. And we saw this happen this week, uh, really sort of a surprise target because usually it's the CBC and the left that's driving this this idea that we should cancel people. I mean, it was just last week that the CBC was part of a movement to to punish and get rid of Stockwell Day, the former leader of the Canadian Alliance, because of remarks that he made saying that systemic racism in Canada doesn't exist. Uh, well, this time around, it was CBC host Wendy Mesley. So Mesley has been suspended from her position after she used, and this is what they say, uh, this is a quote, a word that should never be used, unquote, during an interaction with coworker. So we don't know exactly what word it was, but I think we can all kind of take a guess because apparently she was talking about it was in the context of race. She said that she was quoting another journalist uh, who was having a discussion about race. So this is, we're talking about a private meeting at the CBC, you know, a meeting among the probably staff at her show, um, the weekly, where they're planning out the next episode. And Wendy Messi supposedly said this this word that should never be said. And because of that, there was sort of a internal movement uh, to have her displaced. And so, I mean, it's kind of kind of sad that, you know, we've come to this where you can't even say a word in a private conversation that's completely in context of a quote of, of something that someone else said. Um, but, you know, apparently some words are off limits in our society. Fair enough. But... The idea that, that, that she got canceled over it, I, I, I don't like seeing it, even for someone like Wendy Mesley, who, uh, you know, I'm not a big fan and I don't like her style or her approach, Sam. But, you know, some people say she has it coming. And if you live by the SJW sword, you got to die by the SJW sword. I, I don't think so. I don't think that we should ever cheer on um, mob justice like this. But uh, what's what's your take on the whole cancel culture and Wendy Mesley falling victim to it? Well, there's two problems. And the first problem is when you have a culture that the axe comes down, the hammer comes down on you anytime you slip up, then you're just living in a very stressed out way because you're not sure, especially when the rules are changing as they are all the time now, where something, you know, five or 10 years ago, a couple of years ago that you used to be able to say or that you, you think you can still say, suddenly you can't and you're not really clear on that. And, and it's very stressful. It's very um it's not good for the soul to, to live in, in such a way. So that's the first problem. The second is it eliminates the concept of a teachable moment or people growing, people learning. Uh, I used to work at B'nai B'rith, which is a it's a Jewish human rights organization, and we used to be sort of the anti-Semitism watchdog. Um, there, I did a lot of work regarding their annual study on anti-Semitism. And I remember a case specifically where there was a former CFL player who tweeted a number of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. 
And so we reached out to, it was on the Alouettes, and so we reached out to the team and said, listen, like, this is what we got, and we received no response. Uh, the draft happened to be going on at the same time, which uh, I guess they were super busy, but uh, we didn't get a response, and so we, we issued a public statement. But the point is, we didn't call right away for the guy to be fired. We ended up speaking to him, speaking to the manager of the team, and saying, listen, you know, I don't know if you know that what you're tweeting there is like super, super offensive. It's just plain wrong. You know, it could lead to, you know, serious problems down the road, whether it's actual violence against Jewish people or something, you know, this is just bad stuff. So what we'd like to do is we'd like to help you understand why what you tweeted was bad. And maybe you would like to, you know, do a podcast with us, do a video with us, do something with us to help explain to people why such and such anti-Semitism that you did was bad or why racism in general is bad. And that's a teachable moment for him. That was a moment where we took someone who we could have just shut down. We could have said, you know, hey, you get fired. That crushes dreams of being a professional athlete, you know, just totally crush the man. And what was that going to accomplish for anyone? Now, I'm not saying you can rehabilitate or that every person is going to be open to some sort of education, but we're not even trying at this point. It's a really good point because I think a lot of times we have a lot more in common than we think. And the idea that someone would just get completely shut off or blacklisted, it doesn't really help anyone because even say that there are a group of people that hold sort of these illiberal views. If you just cancel one of their you know, colleagues or friends or someone who thinks like them, it's not going to make the idea subside. It's not going to make the idea go away if it is a dangerous idea or if it is sort of a mainstream idea. You know, the best way to, 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 to confront it is to actually, you know, combat it and say, let's have a discussion and conversation as opposed to just trying to silence it, which is sort of the, the, the I think your approach that you, you had with Benai Birth is much, much better than the cancel culture approach because it doesn't really accomplish anything other than ruining person's life and then the mob just moves on like they don't think twice about it and they don't really care they're just there for that that moment of sort of pleasure that you might get from seeing your enemy you know fall and then and then that's it even even you know last week we had a whole bunch of people on the left and even people in the mainstream criticizing rex murphy for a column where rex just basically said canada is a great country let's not forget that we're different than, than other countries that have really, really, really dark histories when it comes to things like slavery. Canada doesn't have that. Obviously, we're not perfect, but our society is not completely characterized by racism, is, is the point he was making. And everyone just totally overreacted, mischaracterized what he said, tried to sort of do a bait and switch where they said, oh, Rex is saying that there is no racism in Canada. That's clearly wrong because here's two or three examples of racism, which doesn't didn't disprove Rex, and, and they basically just said, you're an old white man, you don't have the right to talk. I, I, would, I would have found it much more interesting to see some kind of a debate, or you know, if there's a couple of people that say, hey Rex, you're wrong about Canada, I would, I would much more, I'd be much more interested in having a podcast or having a discussion about that, as opposed to them just saying like, you're wrong old white man, and you don't get an opinion, you're not allowed to talk about race anymore, which essentially is, is what happened, and it's kind of sad. That's the thing. I mean, you know, there's things like the Indian Act. There's some obviously terrible history that's happened to to almost any country. You can't you can't find a country that, that hasn't engaged in some slavery or terrible terrible history. I mean, people act as if it was just the United States and Canada or just the United States that engaged in slavery. I mean, it was a global institution for hundreds, thousands of years, pretty much. Um, but the thing is, we we have to remember that Canada is not a strictly homogenous society. There are some countries and societies that are super homogenous, and I think we should we should uh, grade ourselves based on how well we're doing or where we're headed, not necessarily the mistakes that we've made. And there might be mistakes that we should point out and say, hey, we're still making that mistake. 
Um, I know I've been working a lot on, on First Nations and Indigenous stuff, and there's a lot of complaints about the Indian Act, but that doesn't mean that Canada as a whole is moving in the wrong direction. Now, now you could debate that. You could say, I think it is, but saying that Rex Murphy should be fired or just you know eliminated from, from public society because he, he dared to say such a thing, ultimately, again, that's, that's not going to help. That's not going to teach anyone for someone who's may, who may not be aware of, of all of Canadian history to just say, well, you know, Canada's super racist and Rex Murphy should be fired. They're just not going to understand what's going on or, or, you know, what the different, like, what's, what's the deal here? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that there's definitely more of a need uh, for, for learning or teaching teachable moments, like you said. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because the CBC is this sort of like, it, it is this large Canadian institution that it, it dominates the media landscape. They get $1.2 billion in taxpayer money every year. And they've sort of established themselves as like the arbiters of truth and the sort of front lines of the SJW wars on our in, in our society, culture wars. And so it, it's interesting to see this sort of dynamic of, you know, they're, they're kind of out there saying that, we should silence other voices that we don't agree with or that, that the CBC should continue to dominate the media landscape and crush out the competition. And then when it comes to their own institutions, they're more than happy to throw people under us. Sam, I just think this is a, a big example of how corrupt the CBC is, how, how, how they've just gone wrong. I mean, they just, whatever the purpose was originally, that's clearly not what they're doing anymore. And I think I think they're past, past their due. So there are a lot of calls for Suddenly, there's a lot of calls for defunding the police, for abolishing the police, for reforming the police. I, I think I think before we, we get into conversations about that, why don't we talk about defunding or abolishing the CBC? Because I'm, I'm more than happy to talk about ways to cut government, for ways to cut back on spending and to have, a, you know, a fair, free society. I think, I think that would be a good place to start, and I'm sure there's lots of others. Uh, one, one example of uh, CBC just outright failing this was a tweet that came out. There's a comedy show run by the CBC called This Hour is 22 Minutes. Their Twitter account is sort of notoriously unfunny. And I don't know who runs it, but <laughs> I, I always feel like it's some intern that they're like, hey, kid, just tweet because I don't know. It's always so ignorant and so dumb. But they, they posted this tweet this week and it says, new report shows that when it comes to leadership, Canada's political parties aren't getting more diverse. And if it's even possible, the conservatives seem to be getting paler. So I, f I feel like this is a tweet like void of any reality because, uh, first of all, you know, Canada's political parties aren't getting any more diverse. I, I don't know that that's factually provably true. I mean, there's four major parties and one of the leaders is Sikh. So that's pretty diverse from a Canadian perspective. I don't I don't really understand the tweet. And then to go even further, the conservatives are getting even paler. Well, Sam, there's four leadership candidates running for the current leader of the party, and one of them is Leslie Lewis, who is a black woman. So presumably when it comes to diversity, that's that's sort of, you know, doing a lot better than the other parties, because at least we have a conservative black female that's in the running, that's one of the top four contenders to to become the, the next person to take on Justin Trudeau in the next election. So this, this tweet just obviously didn't uh, put a lot of research or thought into it before it came out. What did you, uh, what did you make of it? Well, see, the thing with the problem with this, the problem with this game is that if you want to play the game to the end, then no one is ever going to win. And I'll give you I'll give you an example of what I mean. So in the tweet, they said that the party's getting paler. OK, look at me. I might be pretty pale. People might say I'm pretty white. 
but both of my parents are from the Middle East. My mom's family is from Syria and northern Israel, that whole region, and my dad's family is from Turkey. They have been for hundreds of years, both of them. I have my family tree on both sides. But yet I might be considered a white person or have white privilege or be white passing, and a Syrian refugee is now a person of color because they happen to be literally from Syria where because I was born here, now I'm, I'm suddenly not. And so just saying that the party's getting paler in and of itself, I can pull apart that entire tweet on literally one word that you chose to smear the party or to talk about our politics. Like there's no end to this game because again, you know, I just dug up their tweet and exposed a flaw in like two seconds. So you really have to look at the representation of the party, the party members, do they have some sort of policies or some sort of, you know, is there something that's preventing minorities or people of color or, or something else that, that is stopping them from getting engaged, though it is somehow making it unattractive to be engaged with that party. Now, if you look at just standard conservatism or small government fiscal conservatism, that kind of stuff, I don't really know what's um, what's interesting or disinteresting to any person based on their race, ethnicity, gender, whatever. That's just you know just policy things. So it's pretty offensive in and of to say to say that. And if you look at the House of Commons, I don't think you can you know, adequately make that, make that statement based on the, the representation of what the population of Canada truly is. Right. It's like the lowest common denominator, lo lowest common denominator, like ignorant tweet. And you're right. Using that word paler, there's just such a racial implication that like being white is bad. So being paler is, is like a dig, I guess. I, I, I don't like race based, you know, I mean, I mean, I guess that's the basis of comedy is usually poking mm -hmm. fun at people and stuff like that. But Really, this is where our government resources are going. And again, I, the, you know, the basic like knee-jerk accusation that comes from the far left against conservatives is that they're racist. And I, I think the basis of it, it's usually a ghost hunt. They're trying to find justifications. But I think the basic uh, rationale is that conservatives tend to be more prone to tradition and, and promote uh, protecting institutions and stuff. And so they, they think that that must be because they're trying to like maintain some kind of privilege, which is, is, is such a misnomer. And it's, it's sort of a lazy argument, Sam. But, you know, the reality, of course, is that the first ever Muslim MP in Canada was a conservative, Raheem Jaffer out in Edmonton. Uh, the first ever Chinese MP was a conservative, Douglas Jung. The first ever black member of parliament in Canada was a conservative, Lincoln Alexander. So, you know, it's, it's an easy, stupid punchline joke, but the reality is empirically untrue. And, and, and in fact, the conservatives do attract a large number of people from diverse communities, mostly because they promote that sort of traditional ideas, sort of family at the forefront. And you, when you think about immigrants and people that come to Canada, you know, they come as a family unit, family, community, church, that's everything to them. And, and, and I just say church as a, as a, as a coverall for any religious institution, uh, be it, you know, whether they're Jewish or Muslim or Buddhist or whatever, uh, you know, those are their core institutions that they believe in. And those also happen to be the sort of core values among conservatives, which is why conservatives tend to be pretty diverse. So lame attempt there at this uh, comedy by the CBC. And again, I think uh, instead of focusing on defunding the police, we should be focusing on defunding um, divisive institutions like the CBC. But Sam, let's talk about that mainstream idea, that suddenly mainstream idea that, that's come about in the last two weeks, that it is time to defund the police. So you see it everywhere. Uh, you know, I, this, I, I've mentioned this a couple of times, but it drives me crazy. Like the front cover of the weekend version of the, the weekend edition of the National Post last year, uh, last weekend, sorry, said defund the police. And that, you know, even in the supposedly conservative uh, newspaper in Canada, you know, you see it in the Toronto Star and you kind of expect it. But when you see the National Post, it's like, okay, wow, this has totally become a mainstream 
idea that you hear on every news station, every radio station. They're all talking about it. Even the city of Toronto has now announced that they will be slashing their budget by $122 million, which is approximately 10%. And when I first heard that, I was like, okay, uh, I'm sure there's 10% redundancies and, and, and uh, things that can easily be cut without people noticing. Uh, hopefully that equates to maybe a decrease on taxes because I live in Toronto and believe me, the property taxes on my house are absurd and the land transfer tax and all that other stuff. But no, uh, the money's not going back to taxpayers, Sam. It's going towards other services that they decided uh, to reallocate. So it's not, it's not actually trimming government. It's just punishing the police, presumably, for uh, you know something that happened in another country. Uh, what, what, what do you think of the whole defund the police movement and how it's become so mainstream? So, you know, from uh, from like a marketing or advocacy perspective, I understand they make shocking accusations or shocking headlines. These are like attention grabbers, right? You, you say something sort of outlandish that is devoid of context that, you know, nobody really understands. And you're like, oh, my God, they, they want to defund the police. Like, what's that? But the problem is you have to then follow up with some sort of policy, something that you actually want to talk about. So now if you want to say, as we were just saying here, you know, the police budget is inflated. There's too many redundancies. They're not effective in the roles that we expect police to be effective in. You know, they've been, for example, they've been saddled with a lot of mental health issues. A lot of the calls that they report to, um, you know, it might be it might be a mental health issue. And there might be some other way that we can deal with that better. But without that plan, and that that's the problem with, um, you know, when you start becoming this sort of like large mass protest movement is there's ultimately no clear or coherent messaging. So maybe the original people who came up with this defund the police actually mean let's move money from police to other services. But the problem is then the message is totally, totally diluted because now every single person is putting a hashtag and they're putting their own spin on it. And if you're a policymaker, I mean, let's just think about it rationally for a second. You're a policymaker. You actually want to do this thing. You know what? The people have spoken. I want to defund the police. Okay. So I'm just literally just going to slash budgets. That sounds pretty conservative to me. Just cutting people's budgets pretty flatly. Um, you know, what, like, what are you supposed to do? Where's, where's the advice? Where's the recommendations that are, that you're being given as a policymaker? What, what do you take away from this? Uh, yeah, that's a great point because, you know, conservatives have long been calling for things like reform in public sector unions. I think one of the major issues that we're finding with, uh, you know, when it comes to police brutality, particularly in the U.S., is that bad cops can't get fired. And a lot of that is because of police unions and public sector unions that have negotiated. So, and, and, and here in Canada, I was just reading this morning that the average, uh, the, the average police officer in Canada gets paid a hundred grand a year. Uh, that's, a, that's a pretty good salary. I'm not saying that they don't deserve it. I think they probably do. But the idea that, you know, these public sector unions uh, wield so much power and control that they often do end up with sort of inflated budgets and, and lots of money that can sometimes go towards things that aren't the best use. I, I'd be all for that. But you're right, when they come forward with this like really extreme sort of inflammatory statement like defund the police, I, I think I think they lose many people that might otherwise be on board. Like, you know, if, if you if you might be on board, you know, like you and I are to maybe going through the police department, seeing if there's too much money being spent or thinking about ways that we can make the police service more effective or maybe, you know, in certain cases, not always using police officers, but using other types of workers. But as soon as you hear the defund the police, it's like, what are you talking about? That's, that's like anarchy. And, you know, I, I would be for cutting literally every other program in government. I think that the, the, the very last thing that you should get rid of, you know, even in a perfect ideal society, would be police. The, the, the basic role, the foundational role of the state, 
after all, is to preserve order, law and order. So, so you can get rid of literally every other government department, and, and, and it's really the security and safety of the people that is foundational, and we need police. So the, the inflammatory idea, I think, loses a lot of people. And, and then even when you dissect it a little more, Sam, because I have been reading into this a little bit, I, I, I try to at least understand the arguments that they're that are being made. And a lot of times it's like, hey, you know, if you have a homeless person or if you have someone who's suffering from mental illness or someone who's addicted to drugs, it's not always the best idea to send a police officer in to deal with them. Like there are other, you know, you could send in a, a health ex, mental health expert or addictions therapist expert or a social worker into these situations instead of always relying on the police. Well, my, my, my only criticism of that is that that's like literally already the policy in a lot of these police departments, especially in Canada. I think a lot of times we see a conflation of issues in Canada versus issues in the United States. And the reason that police end up sometimes going into wellness checks and sometimes going in to deal with people who are suffering from, you know, uh, the drug hallucinations or that kind of thing is usually because they are considered armed and dangerous. So, so a social worker cannot go in because it's not safe for them. So they send a police because it's their job to deal with violent situations. So again, the, the idea I think is just sort of overblown and they're capitalizing on this moment where there was a really horrific example of pr police brutality in the United States. And so they're trying to use that to see uh, sweeping changes in Canada. And I think that we should resist against that. I think it's funny you touched on that. It, it, we've been chatting about this. It it bothers me to no end the importation of American rhetoric. I mean, you know, on one hand, I don't blame people. We're steeped in American movies. We're steeped in American culture. Um, you know, people in, in other countries don't know what, uh, you know, a senior, junior, freshman, all that kind of stuff is. And we, you know, we tend to, if you watch enough American movies, you know, you know what this is, even though it doesn't exist in this country. And so it's not surprising that you might feel that problems they have in the States is a problem that we have here. The problem is that we're not having conversations about issues in Canada. We can't talk about what's going on here. And when you want to try and solve a Canadian problem, like what's going on on the streets of Toronto with, with gun violence or, or anti-black racism, we, we can't look at that because we're so busy talking about police brutality in the States, we're not looking at whether that brutality exists in the same form here, whether racism exists in the same form here. Um, you know, I've, I think I've heard a long time ago something about how uh, Canadian racism is more polite. It's sort of, you know, a, a joke about how Canadians are more polite. And so fine, may, maybe our our discrimination is different in this country, but we can never look at it because we're so busy protesting about something they're doing in the States. We're not bothering to look at what are the causes or what are the effects on, on the populace in, in this country. And it's really unfortunate because the people who are suffering are going to continue suffering because no one is ever going to have that conversation in this country unless we start abandoning this American rhetoric and have real Canadian discussions that that goes for every political leader of all of all stripes and all levels. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Like, and, and I think one of the other things that happens there is that when Canadians do make that point that you're just making, like, hey, look, America has a very different history than we do. And therefore, we don't have the same issues as, as a result of consequences of history. Then you sort of get accused that like, saying, oh, well, you just glossed it over, like, like, you're defending Canada based on saying we're not as bad at the US, but that doesn't mean that we don't have our own problems here. It's like, no, we should establish some ground rules. Like Canada was established after slavery was abolished in the British Empire. So Canada as a country never had the institution of slavery. It never existed in Canada, quite the opposite. Uh, Canada was the location where a lot of freed slaves from the United States came to have their freedom. Or, or, or after the, the war, the Revolutionary War, um, a lot of 
black Americans came to Canada because they were promised freedom by the British Empire. So, you know, there are important points in history that we should point out to say why our history is different. We never had the discriminatory Jim Crow laws like the United States did. That's not to say that, that no racism exists in Canada, Sam. It's just to say that we have a different historical experience. We should base our conversations on what's happened in Canada and not, to your point, trying to import the rhetoric from the United States. It's a really good point. But again, a lot of that is lost today because there's just uh, everyone is afraid to have these conversations and and everyone is afraid of getting canceled or, uh, you know, having the mob come against them. Well, it's not just Toronto, Sam, that's talking about defunding their police budgets or reducing the police budgets. Uh, budgets are under review in Vancouver, Victoria, Edmonton, as protesters call for anti-racism reform. So hearing from local politicians in all, all uh, a handful of Canadian cities uh, with the same, same rhetoric, same ideas, um, there is a Black Lives Matter petition to divest police funding in Edmonton, so take away the funding from the police and put it elsewhere. And uh, yeah, they're really starting to gain traction. So uh, interesting times, and I hope that uh, you know politicians can 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 find the nerve to defend uh, police institutions because they're, they're just so foundational. Premier Ford in Ontario did say that he opposes. Uh, the defunding of police, and we got a clip of that. So let's uh, let's play Premier Ford saying that he does not believe in defunding the police. All right, thank you. My next question is for the Premier specifically, um, and it's on another topic. Uh, Premier, there are calls to defund police services right across North America. The OPP is a billion-dollar operation under your purview. Uh, what are your thoughts on defunding police in general, and specifically your thoughts on defunding the OPP? Well, I don't believe in that for a second. I think we need a, a strong uh, uh, police uh, within our communities. What we do need to do is have higher standards. We need to uh, focus on more training. I think I'm a big believer, as, as Chief Saunders always believed, uh, in community policing, get involved in, in the community, learning uh, more about your community. Uh, that, that's what I believe in, but uh, I just don't believe in you know, uh, cutting uh, police budgets. I just never believed in that. So good to see a little bit of voice of reason left in, in some politicians anyway. Uh, but you can't say that across the board. So there was a Black Lives Matter protest, Sam, out in Alberta, in Edmonton. And this is a pretty shocking story. So they barred entry to the event of Alberta's Minister of Municipal Affairs, Casey Madu. So he's banned from speaking at this event, at this anti-racism protest. The problem is that Madhu, who was born in Africa, is black himself. So I think this really points to the idea that these protests are not really about race. They're more about ideology. So they would rather hear from a white guy who just happens to be part of their ideological tribe than an actual black person who is in a position of authority and power in the country and can speak about his experiences they, they, they don't want to hear about they don't want to hear from him because he happens to be a conservative, which is pretty disappointing, but not at all surprising. So uh, Alberta Minister of Municipal Affairs, Casey Madu, took to social media to record his own video. And this is what he had to say. Hello, Casey Madu here. Last Friday, I was invited to speak at this stage behind me about my lived experience with racism. I was looking forward to standing with the organizers and our community until the NDP and the allies intervened to have my invitation rescinded. 
To add insult to injury, the NDP MLA for Edmonton Whitemore, Rocky Pancholi, told me to, and I quote, reflect on why I wasn't welcome. Well, MLA Pancholi, I have reflected, and all I can see is that I am black, and yes, I am conservative. This is the same NDP whose propaganda arm, Press Progress, called me a white supremacist during the last election. An election where my opponent told voters to vote as if their skin was not white. I say, enough divisive NDP politics. I have always spoken openly and honestly about my lived experience with racism. Racism is real, and we all must work together to fight it. The scourge of racism is bigger than our politics, and it's also bigger than our political parties. Let's stop the divisive NDP and left-wing politics and vow to destroy racism together. So that must be pretty disappointing to not be welcome at an anti-racist protest, you know, even, even if that's something that he strongly believes in, um, but you're not welcome as a speaker just because of your political affiliation. What do you make of that, Sam? Well, again, you know, this is the problem when you start playing this game is that you either get to a situation where nobody wins or you simply sideline people who should not be because they're probably look his black experience is probably similar to a lot of other black canadians the fact that he's a minister I if i saw him on the street i would have no idea who it is right if, if someone is a racist person his position is not preventing him from suffering racism or institutional racism or any any other type of difficulty that is going to be caused because of the color of his skin at the same time it you know, focusing simply just on how much melanin is in his skin ignores other factors that may contribute to your experience. So, for example, you might have, you know, different, you might come from a different class, right? You might come from a different, you might have a different mother tongue, different language. You might be an immigrant or not an immigrant. You might be in a poorer part of the country or wealthier part of the country. You might be from a more rural place or more urban place. All of these things are going to contribute to your, you know, your life experience. Uh, you know, I don't like these buzzwords, I almost said lived experience, but I believe in the concept, you know, people's life experience does make a difference, but saying that he has literally nothing, like, that's what it is. He has literally nothing of value to add. You, you, sir, have nothing of value to add to this conversation because you happen to be a member of the UCP. Like, that's insane. He clearly is going to have some experiences the same as other people, but to tell him that, uh, you know what, you're probably of the wrong party, you have nothing to contribute to this conversation, quite the opposite. You should bring him there and tell him, Oh, hear what he's got to say. I had this experience. I had that experience. I'm like you. Okay, Mr. Minister, I'll tell you why you're not like me. Because A, B, C, D, and this is what you're missing, and this is what you need to advocate for. What What happened to that? What happened to reaching out to... Like, he's literally in a position of power. Why can't we try and get him on our side? Try and explain to him. That's, again, that, what I used to do for many years is advocacy, and that's trying to get politicians to do something that you would like them to do which is hopefully for the betterment of society so it's not just lobbying for you know some some sector or something but what happened to reaching out to politicians they're never going to agree with you or even understand you if you just sideline them but uh you know i guess it's much easier to sideline them than to have some difficult discussions and maybe realize that you are not 100 percent correct or the way you're looking at something is not the only worldview Right. Well, they're not really interested in having a conversation or learning anything. They're just more interested in pounding their fists and asserting their control. I think this proves because, 
you're right. It, you know, if they had had ha if they had allowed Minister Matter to come and speak, maybe they would even find that they had shared experiences with him and they could bridge a gap between the other party or the other ideology and say, wow, you know what, we have more in common with conservatives than we thought, making creating more unity in society, which is what we really need right now. We need to, to talk about the things that unite us as opposed to things that divide us. So again, just pretty disappointing stuff. Uh, next story I want to talk about, Sam, which is kind of interesting and a little bit I don't know if this is a conflict of interest or what, but we learned this week that the Canadian Foreign Affairs Minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne, has two registered residential mortgages residential mortgages with the state-owned Bank of China in London, which opposition says opens him to personal financial vulnerability at a time when Beijing relations are at a standstill. I, I, I find this just a little bit of an odd story, just you know, the facts of it. You know, why does the Foreign Affairs Minister of Canada have two multi-million dollar properties in London, England? He's not from England, he's French. So why does he have, and then he has these massive mortgages. I mean, $1.7 million for one home and $1.2 million for the other. I don't know the value of the home, but, you know, usually you can't get a very big uh, percentage mortgage when it comes to properties that big. And then why would he go to a state-owned Chinese bank when there are like hundreds of other banks that he could have gone to, including Canadian banks? It just seems like a really weird story. And I feel like it does sort of make him vulnerable or a bit of a conflict because we've heard him defend China so many times. And it's like, well, the guy's doing business with the Chinese government's state-owned banks, and he's the foreign minister representing Canada. I don't know why this stuff wasn't disclosed a lot earlier either. What did you make of this story, Sam? Well, I think it's it's really what the conservatives said, but but to expand on it, it's if you want to turn the screws on someone, right? You want to influence them and you want to apply some kind of pressure. So you could apply pressure because he's a foreign minister. You can say that as China, you know, we're going to do something about trade. We're going to, you know, bar this or, or purchase that. You know, there's a lot of things they could say. If you want to turn the screws on him personally, and I don't think it's a stretch to say that China or the Chinese government has used Chinese industries or Chinese companies to to affect you know the, the relations or to um, meddle in in different political uh, interests in other countries. Um, but look, it obviously leaves him open because that's something they could turn the screws on him. They could suddenly decide that uh, either they're selling his mortgage, they're renegotiating. Maybe, maybe he's up for an interest rate renewal. Suddenly they're going to you know quote him at a twenty seven percent interest. Again, it's not that you know even if he loses this house and he goes bankrupt, it's that's not to say that he's going to now suddenly do whatever China says as the foreign minister. But it's simply, it's something that you, it's not necessary, you didn't necessarily need to do. And even if it this just so happened to be that he had the mortgage from this bank, he probably should be, or any government official should be aware, and especially him as the foreign minister, he should be aware that this is something that you are now vulnerable on a personal level, that if you were... If you're going to have this risk, you should think about it and you should make sure it's not coloring or, or influencing your decisions because it might like we're all, we're all human. I'll, you know, I don't need to fault the guy um, overly, but we're all human. If they're going to tell him suddenly we're going to cancel your mortgage or we're going to you know, do something to you personally, he, he might, you know, he might change a couple words in a speech or he might um, soften something that he wanted to say. Right. And that's that's not good for the country. That's not how foreign relations should be conducted. And so it's 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 a it's a blind spot. It's a personal vulnerability. Uh, is it the end of the world? I, I don't know yet because it hasn't happened yet. They haven't done it to him, but it's definitely a vulnerability. And it's a it's a very fair point. 
Well, we don't know that it hasn't happened yet. I mean, I know that he refused <laughs> yeah, to true. say the yeah. word Taiwan. Maybe maybe they already are tightened the screws, Sam. But no, I think I think the real concern is is not even something actually happening. It's just the appearance. Like, you know, the guy's mm-hmm. a Canadian Minister of Foreign Affairs, you know, for Canada. Why is he off doing doing business with the Chinese? It looks bad and it makes people question, you know, exactly where his uh, allegiance stand uh, in some regard. And, uh, you know, in, interestingly... Uh, this week as well, Aaron O'Toole, leader of the Conservative Party, has released a very substantive uh, policy platform. I think it was like 50 pages, which is a lot better than what Peter McKay released a few weeks ago, which was like, you know, eight points and each eight points had four bullet points and there was no, not much information. So this is a bit more of a substantive uh, piece of policy proposal. There were some pretty good aspects of it. He has some interesting ideas about reducing uh, emissions and... and um, sort of promoting a Canadian energy, but bringing in different uh, methods of, of collecting energy, including nuclear. He has uh, some policies on uh, allowing more competition uh, in Canada for airlines and telecom companies. He has detailed further his plan to eliminate funding for the CBC. So he talks about eliminating funding for the digital operations. He wants to privatize English language CBC television. And this was really interesting too. He he plans on invoking the notwithstanding clause to bring back mandatory minimum sentences for serious crimes, including murder, kidnapping, sexual assault, and trafficking of illegal guns. The criticism came because this uh, policy platform was not costed, meaning we have no idea how much it's gonna cost. We don't know the full impact. Although he did have a policy where he said that every dollar that he increases in spending would directly correlate with a reduction in a dollar of government spending elsewhere, so presumably it wouldn't grow. But he had no no uh, no timeline for balancing the budget, which I, I don't like to see that. But uh, you know, we have no idea how much Justin Trudeau is spending. Justin Trudeau just sort of uh, stuck his foot on the gas when it came to spending, and I think we're going to have about a 250 billion dollar deficit this year. So it's hard to say exactly when you would be able to get rid of that one when Trudeau hasn't even given a fiscal update because he doesn't even know how much he's spending at this point. So that's pretty interesting. And one of the things I was pleased to see was that um, Aaron O'Toole's immigration policy seems to be reflecting some of the policies that we've reported on here at True North. So there is an emphasis on private refugee sponsorship, which I am a big fan of, and I've been writing about that for years. There is also a little bit about reducing uh, the need for uh, skilled labor, uh, immigration, temporary foreign workers until uh, the Canadian economy recovers, which just makes basic economic sense. So I was pleased to see that. I don't quite understand why he wants to increase um, family reunification policies, which, which don't do a lot of good for the economy um, or for you know combating aging population. So I, did, I didn't like that, but I was pleased, Sam, to see um, that he, it looks like he's paying attention to True North and, and uh, reading some of our stuff on immigration. That's good. And then speaking of immigration, we had a new report out this week that uh, showed that the vast majority, Sam, the overwhelming majority, three quarters of Canadians would like to see a total pause on immigration. They would like to completely halt our immigration programs for the time being until the economy recovers, until the coronavirus threat has passed. So this is based on a scientific research poll conducted by one which is a research company based out of Toronto. Three quarters of Canadians, 76% strongly agree or moderately agree with the statement, Canada should temporarily pause immigration until a vaccine is developed for coronavirus and the unemployment rate drops down to pre-coronavirus levels. What I found really interesting about the study 
uh, this poll, Sam, is that it doesn't really matter what demographic you're looking at in Canada, whether it be by age, by region, by province, by language, male or female, um, at any education level, any income level, any political party that they voted for, every single category had a majority of people saying that they wanted to pause immigration, which I, I haven't seen that before. I mean, 67% of liberal voters said they wanted a pause. 89% of conservative voters wanted a pause. Just an overwhelming majority of people. So it seems like it's pretty common sense policy, although I haven't seen any conservative uh, leadership candidate propose it, and I certainly haven't seen any of the other political parties willing to talk about it. I know people think right now there is a pause on immigration because Justin Trudeau's announced that the borders are closed. The border closure, closure however, mostly just applies to tourists. Uh, people who come for work still get in. The temporary foreign worker program is still up and running. There are still lots and lots of immigrants coming to Canada. So the immigration programs right now have not been paused, but Canadians would like to see a pause. What did you think about this study? Well, you know, everything is wild now because of the coronavirus crisis. I think people's people are, are examining an issue that I don't think they thought about or they've been thinking about it in a way that is strictly, you know, political rhetoric. Um, immigrants are maybe a group because they are all newcomers to this country, but there are different types of immigrants. Different, and I don't mean I'm not, I'm not, not at all talking about where they're coming from. I'm simply talking about are they students? Uh, they get work visas. They become permanent residents. They're refugees. So there's literally different different types of immigrants. And I think what people in this country are thinking about right now is that we have so much crazy stuff going on. When you bring in people, and we, we need to bring in people at some point, right? There's Population is a resource. Ultimately, our economy can only grow and, and grow at a much faster rate if we have more people. The U.S. economy is not only successful and large because of the type of industries that they have, but they have a very large population. And so the more people you have, that's going to have a direct effect on your economy, especially for a growing economy um, or the way that we're, we're looking to grow our economy, our economy as opposed to you know large countries that already exist. Um, but I think people want to have that conversation about what, what does this mean? Hold on. Like everything is kind of crazy. Let's pause this. And I think that's for a lot of people who were talking about immigration. I think that's a, a stance that we've, you know, we've always taken. I mean, I had questions, not even concerns. I just had questions about, for example, um, people, for example, the certain refugees who came in, I, I, had, I had questions and it doesn't, I was not opposed to bringing in refugees. And, and, you know, I think Canada is a successful country. We've been blessed. I think, you know, we, we can, even if it's strictly a, a helping people out kind of thing or bringing them in because we need them and we you know we would like their skills but i had questions because some of these people they're coming from a country in which the society is steeped in anti-semitism and so i simply had questions I, I didn't i wasn't opposed to anything i didn't take any firm stance i literally just had questions i think way back years ago that some of you and i spoke of and i think a lot of canadians are now starting to have questions and that's okay we can have questions about what is immigration in this country going to look like um where are all these people settling, right? Are they all tending to go to Toronto, Montreal, right? Are, you know, what are all these things going to look like? Um, are they going to integrate? Are they, and what does that mean? What, what does it mean to integrate, right? There's a lot of questions that you can have without ever discussing anything that's remotely uh, politically difficult. And I think we need to have that conversation. And I hope that this survey will mean that, I hope this survey means that people are having that conversation in, in their own houses and, and with themselves, because um, I think it's a conversation we need to have. Exactly. I, I think you're right. And I think that, I, I mean, I, I think you could even go beyond questions. I mean, I've, I've been studying this issue for years and years and years. 
And I, I have more than questions. I have concerns. I think that there are major issues with integration in this country. A lot of it is policy-driven. As an example, Justin Trudeau eliminated the English language or French language requirement for a lot of new citizens. He cut down the amount of time he had to spend in Canada to become a citizen, down to just three years part-time. And you, you can see the repercussions, not just of those policies in the last few years, Sam, but of decades of, of, of open immigration without the real dedication towards the, the heavy lifting, the difficult part, which is integration and making sure that people fit in. And that's why you see in cities like Vancouver, my, my hometown, uh, you know, you have entire areas where you'll never hear English spoken and all of the signs are in Mandarin and you just don't even really feel like you're in Canada and you have uh, people going to public schools in Richmond, B.C. And, you know, if they attend a pro-Hong Kong, pro-democracy protest, they get threatening letters from sort of their classmates who are pro-Chinese communist dictatorship, uh, who, who are bringing their attitudes to Canada. And I, I find it disheartening uh, to look at my country and see that kind of stuff happening. And so I think it's only natural when you have a really large-scale immigration program like we do in Canada, that every now and then we just take a pause and say, okay, we've let a lot of people into our country. Let's make sure that everyone's doing okay, that, that, that people are settling, that we're remaining sort of a harmonious, united country. And I think taking pauses every now and then from, from immigration just to ensure that the people who are currently here feel that they are connecting to the Canadian family, I think, I think it's important. And, and I hope that people look at the at the report that True North put out and the scientific study that we had commissioned and, and, and uh, yeah, ask, ask, ask some of the questions and talk about some of these issues that you and I are talking about here. Well, that, that's also the thing. I mean, it's not just, we don't want immigrants or we like, you know, we like immigrants. We don't like immigrants. It's literally the people that are here. Are they able to fully participate in Canadian society? Are they going to be able to partake of all the benefits? I mean, fine. They're going to have responsibilities as well, but we don't want people to come to this country to then be prisoners in their own community, in their own language, and never be able to fully participate in the labor force, to never, you know, I mean, it must suck if you can't really go out for, you know, a walk in the evening downtown and then sit at the cafe because you don't know the language. I mean, that, that's got to be pretty depressing if you're just shut out of parts of society. And obviously it's difficult. You move from a different country. You might be older. It might be more difficult for you to learn the language, acclimatize. The problem is really... Are we making an effort to reach out to these people? And that's what you just said. We we want to check on the people that are here, make sure that they're doing okay, they're fully participating. And I think that the rhetoric from from critics who simply, I don't even know why they, they jump on this, but critics want to make it sound like you're after something totally different when the concern is making sure that people are okay, they're doing well, and they're fully participating in Canadian society. And that means you have to acclimatize yourself. I, I couldn't move to Japan and refuse to speak any Japanese at all ever and expect that I'm going to now fully partake in Japanese society. It's just, it's not going to happen. I might be able to live, get services, et cetera, but I will never be able to fully, fully partake in society. And that would be to my loss. I, I totally agree with that point that you're making. And I think that there's also a public safety concern. You know, the, the uh, example that the Trudeau government used was say, hey, you come to Canada and you're 65 and you're never going to join the workforce. What's the point of learning English? And as soon as they eliminate the English language requirement, you're reducing, you're eliminating the incentive for anyone to even try to learn. And so you're right, they feel isolated in their community. What if, heaven forbid, there was an accident and they needed to reach out to emergency services and call 911? I mean, how would they even have that conversation? You know, 
how would they be able to make friends in their community? How would they be able to branch out? I mean, you're talking about a pretty lonely existence, and this is what the government is, is sort of encouraging, creating incentives towards living that out, which I, I just think is wrong. I think that as Canadians, we should take a stand and demand that our politicians do more to to encourage people who move to Canada to really join the Canadian family, to, to participate more broadly in society, uh, you know, to have that unity among all people instead of sort of isolating in these closed cultural community, which which creates all kinds of problems. Well, Sam, we'd like to end the show on, on a positive note. Um, this, this is kind of a funny positive note. I, I know Justin Trudeau went out to those uh, protests last weekend. So after months and months of nagging Canadians not to go outside as, you know, it's our civic duty. And every time we go outside, we're endangering people. Uh, Trudeau decided to break free of all those uh, rules that he, he himself set and go to a protest uh, basically to virtue signal. Um, one of the things that kind of bugs me is that he got down on one knee, which I don't quite understand why he did that. Um, I think that going down on a knee to me invokes the kind of argument that the cultural argument that was happening in the U.S. for a couple of years around Colin Kaepernick, the San Francisco 49ers quarterback who decided to kneel during the national anthem because he thought that America was a systemically racist society and he didn't want to stand for the national anthem because that would, he, he thought, would sort of be paying homage to a country that he thought was awful and racist. So the whole kneeling thing, I, I think, to me, it conjured images of Colin Kaepernick. Some people say, oh, it's, you know, in solidarity and it's, it's, it's a sign of sort of peace and uh, promoting kind of greater understanding. I, I just thought, again, it was sort of woke performative art. Um, but apparently I'm not alone. So uh, True North analyzed the Twitter responses to uh, tweets from CBC News and CTV. And it turns out that 70%, well, 69% of Twitter users responded negatively to these videos of Justin Trudeau kneeling. So maybe his virtue signaling and his performative art didn't uh, pan out as well as he has expected. What did you think of that story, Sam? Well, you know, see, again, I'm all for, he wants to make some sort of symbolic gesture, fine. But you are the prime minister of this country. You can actually affect change on literally any issue you think is a problem in this country. If you're going to go and take a knee and do a photo op about any issue, I expect you to have some substantive or or literally not substantive call for questions, call for solutions, call like literally say, I want to help. I'm listening. I'm listening. You know, what do you need to tell me? But that's not, it's just, I'm going to take a knee, which again has no, as you said, there's no real Canadian context. It's not clear what that does in Canada. And if you're going to see, you know, fine, it's showing solidarity. All right, I'll take it. As long as you're going to show me that he's going to do something, he's going to say something. Now, so far, I haven't really seen anything substantive from him. I, you know, there's always there's always hope. Uh, maybe, maybe there's no chance, but there's always hope. Um, so, you know what? If he's going to do something, fine. If not, you know, photo ops and, and virtue signaling, like that's... Sadly, we've seen a lot a lot from this prime minister on virtue signaling, like the, the fake feminism and a lot of this stuff, which... Uh, that That's the gaslighting. Back to, you know, to, to come, kind of come full circle, that's, that's the gaslighting, saying, you know, he's super woke, he's not racist, He's the guy who wore blackface. So, you know, just going to leave it there. <laughs> That's a good good place to end the show. Well, Sam, thank you so much for guest hosting the True North Update. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, we thank everyone for, for tuning in and viewing uh, True North. Don't forget to check out our website, tnc.news, to stay up to date with all the latest. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this has been True North Update. Have a great weekend. <laughs>